Good afternoon. It's Friday the 19th of May, 2023. Welcome to UK Colin News. My, I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, well, it's Brian. Welcome to the programme, Brian. Great to be here, Mike. Uh, and as usual for a Friday, uh, we've got Vanessa Bailey live from Damascus by video link. Uh, now, we're going to get straight on here with uh, the G7 uh, because, well, Rishi Sunak has arrived in Hiroshima uh, for the G7 meeting today. Uh, this has got to be the... Uh, the, the biggest bit of hypocrisy that we could possibly see from uh, the seven top global leaders, I say with ultimate sarcasm, uh, because here they are laying wreaths to commemorate the, uh, what was it, 140,000 people killed in the Hiroshima uh, atomic bomb drop uh, from the Second World War. Uh, and I just wonder, Brian, is there a single one of these that wouldn't do exactly the same again? Uh, this time in Russia, perhaps? Well, they're well on the way to, to it, Mike, aren't they? Because, of course, we've got the depleted uranium sent into uh, Ukraine, and uh, we'll be able to report more next week. But it does appear that there are now uh, a number of um, fully qualified people asking whether there is a fallout problem, nuclear fallout problem in Western Ukraine, and um, that fallout zone would extend into Poland. So there are a number of questions. So these people were quite happy. We lay wreaths on one day. The next day, we pump depleted uranium into a war in in Ukraine. I mean, hypocrisy. Off the charts. Off the charts. So, yeah. But it is day one of the G7, and of course that means it's Zelensky Day, effectively. Now, uh, the rumour was that Vladimir Zelensky was going to appear in person at the G7 in Hiroshima, but he's apparently decided to join by video link instead. Uh, Rishi Sunak is going to focus on, government's words here, focusing on redoubling support for Ukraine's defence in the first day of the G7 summit. Uh, but uh, while the main task is uh, more weapons, uh, Rishi Sunak also going to be talking about how he's going to grow the economy. Uh, and of course, that we may view as being a mildly amusing situation, since in the same breath, he's talking about more sanctions on Russia. Uh, and my question is, how have sanctions on Russia been for Western economies so far? Uh, pretty bad, pretty is the bad. answer. And also that we can see report after report in in media, you know, across UK and uh, the Western world and the US saying, well, the sanctions are not working. So what is the point of this? Uh, indeed. So let's just have a look at the uh, latest 86 individuals and entities uh, freezing the assets of those involved with key revenue streams is what they're saying. Uh, the package includes companies connected to theft of Ukrainian grain uh, and those involved in shipment of Russian energy. This is These are the government's words, you understand? Uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say, Mike, because what have we been reading? We've been reading about deep uh, state corruption inside Ukraine, and if that corruption is as widespread as all the investigation shows, I would assume that it would also extend into grain. Uh, yes. Uh, let's move on. Uh, companies connected with Ross Adams' support of Putin's military efforts are also being sanctioned. Uh, and they've also introduced a ban on Russian diamonds, as well as imports of Russian origin copper, aluminium and nickel. Uh, and uh, well, here's James Cleverly's response to this. It's very clever. Uh, Putin and his supporters must and will pay for their illegal invasion of Ukraine. So the British government's saying that the uh, sanctions will remain in place until Russia has made full reparations for their invasion and the destruction in Ukraine. Before we move on, uh, I know I'm hijacking you here a little bit, Vanessa, but you got any thoughts? No, I mean, what I find really interesting, we talked about this in last week's Extra, is the, the commodity block, which is kind of Russia, China, and all of the countries that are grouping themselves around Russia and China, have control, literally, of the majority of the world resources. <laughs> And yet the West is still playing this supremacy game and acting l like it doesn't need any of those resources. It's quite extraordinary, actually. I mean, it, it's hubris beyond comprehension, particularly for civilians of those countries who are the ones who are going to suffer, of course. Uh, couldn't agree more. So, so <laughs> finesse has got the same problem. It's almost difficult to report this because it has become so mad, so clown world is being used by a number of people, and I think it's right. It is so bad now with what they say and what they do and what they claim, it's almost impossible to report it. 
so let's uh, let's move on from Ukraine and consider China because China is a big problem as well. And so the UK has been very proud to announce a new UK-Japan global strategic partnership. Uh, this is all about uh, the Indo-Pacific region. This is all about uh, China. Um, and so they've launched what they're calling the Hiroshima Accords. Uh, this is a, a very big part of it, as I say, is to step up defense cooperation with Japan uh, and uphold, uphold stability in uh, the Indo-Pacific. Uh, now, that follows just a couple of days ago, uh, this from Lloyd Austin, the US Secretary of State for Defense, uh, saying that uh, he was telling a, a Senate committee that basically the United States is about to pump $500 billion worth of more weapons Taiwan's way. Um, this is just an incredible, uh, sorry, I, I, I suspect that, sorry, let me just check. I think that's $500 million worth uh, of, uh, of aid package in terms of military aid going to Taiwan immediately. Uh, and, well, the Chinese haven't taken this very well. So this is uh, uh, Tai Kefei, the uh, uh, Chinese Ministry of National Defense spokesman, saying, we sternly warn the United States side to earnestly abide by the one China principle and the provisions of the three China-US joint communiques uh, and fulfill its commitment of not supporting Taiwan independence and stop any forms of military collusion with Taiwan. I mean, Vanessa, the outcome of this, uh, this, this is the, the same types of preparation that we saw. We saw arms flowing into Ukraine years before the Ukraine conflict began. Uh, we're being set up for a fall here. I'm talking about the West uh, by just continuing to build uh, the situation at Taiwan to the point that it's going to break. Well, and also there's this um, constant um, reliance on kind of festering divisions, whereas re in reality, Taiwan, the majority are Chinese origin. So the West is effectively fermenting any divisions, just as in Iran, it's, it's um, manipulating people into thinking that they're badly off when in reality, Iran has all the resources it needs. People have subsidized gas, electricity, fuel, et cetera, right? So this is the power of Western mind manipulation, and, and it's very frightening. And it's exactly what happened in Syria. Of course, the weapons were flowing in um, to Turkey, to Jordan, from Libya in particular, even before we knew that. We knew that it was starting to be fermented back in 2009. It's extraordinary. And yet people still kind of keep buying into the blueprint. That, that's another aspect of it that I kind of don't get. It's happened so many times, and yet people get bamboozled by the propaganda every time. Yes. Yeah. I'd, I'd just add here that there's, there's something else that I, I pick up on, and that is what, is what are the weapons that the U.S. is, is putting in? Because we know the U.S. is out of ammunition for the Ukraine war. They can't produce the shells. Those shells have got to come from somewhere else. We know that they don't want to give away tanks. They don't want to give away um, further air defense systems. And even if they did, and it's Patriot, that's not performing in Ukraine. So it's almost like Taiwan is buying into the hype of I, I usually come back to the American film Top Gun. So they buy into the hype that America is still a superpower and it's got this phenomenal military capability and the industrial base to support war. But the reality is they haven't. So, so Taiwan is being stoked up on the hype of what the US claims to be. But the reality is that if the fighting starts, a lot of those weapon systems are not going to perform. That's how, that's how I see it at the moment. Vanessa? Well, is there any potential that those weapons that are going into Taiwan eventually are going to be nuclear also? Because as far as we know, that hasn't happened in, in Ukraine apart from depleted uranium. But as you say, what have they got left in the arsenal to send into, into Taiwan? And they also have Africa on the back burner or, or a little more on the front burner now. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is a, this is a very good question. Now, just to finish off on the uh, Hiroshima Accords, uh, one uh, other aspect of it that uh, Rishi Sunak want, was very keen to let us all know about was uh, a signature on a an agreement with the uh, Japanese over cybersecurity, uh, and uh, as part of that, Fujitsu UK will join uh, the Industry 100 at the National 
Cybersecurity Center, and I, I don't know if you're aware of this little grouping, but it's uh, a little grouping of 100, well, if we look at it, we've got military, industrial, banking, uh, and Tesco's. so on. I think and, we and should Tesco highlight, highlight Tesco. So as, as you shop, you're going to be helping this, this little group of people. So th th this is the reality coming out of the woodwork, that this is nothing to do with national governments. This is to do with global Global, global governance global governance and global corporations now showing themselves as to who's really taking power. Uh, yes, okay, so let's uh, move on then. And Vanessa, um, we, uh, Ms., uh, sorry, Assad is off to the uh, Arab League. Yep. Um, very interesting that um, I found out today that the actual agreement to allow Syria back into the Arab League, Syria, of course, was one of the founding members, but the agreement was arrived at on the 80th anniversary of the founding of the Ba'ath Party in Syria. So some very sort of momentous dates coming into play there. Um, but if we play the video, I'll just talk over it. It's probably the easiest. This is President Assad arriving yesterday afternoon in Jeddah. Um, for the summit today, um, he will take his seat at uh, well, he at 1 p.m. today, um, and he's already basically since his arrival, he was met by um, very high-level uh, delegation, um, and he brought with him a very high-level delegation, including Dr. Bothena Shaban, his longtime uh, political and media advisor, and also translator and interpreter for his father, of course. Um, and uh, Faisal Muqdad, the foreign minister, Ayman Suzan, the deputy uh, foreign minister of Syria. They've already had a number of bilateral meetings, including with Tunisia, which was um, televised this morning on Syrian TV. Um, you know, and he's planning to meet with Egypt, with Iraq, with Algeria. Um, extraordinary times that 12 years ago, many of the attendees today were telling Western media in particular and Western governments that Assad's days uh, were numbered and that he would be gone in a matter of months because, of course, um, many of the attendees, including Saudi Arabia, Qatar, etc., were funding um, the armed incursion, the terrorist groups uh, that attempted to destabilize Syria and overthrow the government. So, you know, this is a momentous day for all of Syria. Um, it's a victory. There's still a long way to go uh, to, let's say, ensure that economic stability and security returns to the country. But symbolically, as I said, this is, this is quite extraordinary. Um, Assad and Syria is back on the world stage. And, you know, not with their cap in hand, I have to say. President Assad has been very cautious in, in, let's say, his gratitude for being allowed back into the Arab League. He sees it very much that Syria should never have been excluded, that Syria, as I said, was a founding member, and that um, uh -huh. the League itself uh, is lacking in cohesion. And I think just in time, we have lost Vanessa. Okay. So, okay, well, that's very unfortunate. I think what we'll do is we'll uh, we'll move on through and come back to this uh, in a second, if she's able to, to join us. Uh, Hope, hopefully that connection will come back. Yes. Uh, so um, let's, uh, let's move on to Ukraine. Okay, well, very important to do an update on Ukraine because um, the situation around Bakhmut, which is the key part of the battlefield at the moment, gets ever more uh, serious. The fighting gets ever more horrible, but it's clear that Bakhmut is very, very close to falling now. Um, I'm going to thank the military summary channel. I've taken a screenshot from one of uh, their excellent analyses analyses on, on Bakhmut itself. Um, so the city area covered largely uh, the dirty red colour is uh, Russian-held territory and the uh, little blue squares um, show positions of Ukrainian forces. Um, and uh, if we just add to that a little bit, the Russians have been fighting day and night to take over the last remaining strongholds of Ukraine, and that largely includes the central so-called citadel area, 
of the very large uh, high-rise buildings, which we've shown before. If you look um, where the blue and yellow symbol is, still down in the south, south, the southern sector of Bakhmud, there's still territory held by Ukraine, but that is now also coming under huge uh, pressure. And the other thing to mention is that there have been Ukrainian counterattacks on the flanks of Bakhmud, and uh, military summary and some of the other uh, people analysing the situation suggest that these were done to force the Russian troops away from the last remaining uh, communications lines so that uh, Ukrainian troops would be able to safely pull out of Ukraine itself. Um, so though that attack, they did, uh, the Ukrainians did capture relatively small amounts of ground, but they nevertheless achieved it. And this has given the opportunity for the final troops, Ukrainian troops left in Bakhmud, to uh, withdraw to the west, southwest. Uh, if I have a look at um, Weeb Union, another excellent um, uh, analysis, which is usually daily. You can see a little bit more detail um, here with the coloured areas which show how the uh, Russian forces have taken over block by block and more recently building by building in order to secure the city. Um, but again, you can see the area um, just to the uh, northwest of the Weeb Union logo you can see areas still held by the Ukrainians. Now, I'm just going to play this bit of video on screen to show the sheer horror of what's been going on. This is uh, panning round, looking to the west, now up to the north and round to the uh, north, northeast. And it's showing incredibly heavy Russian shelling of the Ukrainian stronghold. Reports say that this level of shelling has gone on day and night for days. So uh, clear proof that all the claims Russia was running out of artillery rounds, complete nonsense. Um, but it's been this level of shelling followed up by uh, clearing of the buildings by the Wagner units themselves that have finally forced the Russians out. And here in this uh, uh, very clear drone footage, you can see the full scale of that uh, stronghold. These are all the high-rise buildings now largely burnt out and smoking and the Ukrainian forces withdrawn. And in the foreground, you're starting to see the so-called Dacha areas. These are the single-storey homes, dwellings, uh, which surrounds the various high-rise areas. And the Dacha areas absolutely flattened with the amount of shelling. So uh, Bakhmut, we can't say has fallen because there are still Ukrainian forces in that uh, south-western uh, sector of the city. But it's very clear it is not going to be long before they have to withdraw or they will simply be killed by the Russians. Um, meanwhile, we wait to see whether the Ukrainians do any further uh, attacks in other parts of the Bakhmut sector or indeed in other places of the wider lines. But at the moment, it appears that most of the Ukrainian so-called counteroffensive are deep are reconnaissance groups who take a small piece of territory and then in many cases suffer losses and have to withdraw. So it's, it's, it's horrible to actually watch the detailed footage because the fighting is so brutal and all of these men, some women being killed because of the West policy to keep the war going. Yes. Um, so Vanessa has joined us again. Okay, uh, that's fine. Vanessa, super. Uh, glad to have you back. Uh, so, All right. No, it's okay. Um, so continue where, we, where you left off with uh, just finish off what you were saying about uh, President Assad's uh, uh, diplomatic efforts. Yeah, I mean, you know, this it, it, it is an extraordinary event. It does represent um, a huge victory for Syria, for the Syrian people and the Syrian leadership and the allies, of course. Um, and many of the subjects that are on the table, um, Syria will take a very active part in. Sudan is going to be discussed. Um, Gaza, of course, the escalation and tension there between Israel and Gaza, and in the occupied territories also. Um, speaking about preventing Western intervention, which is an interesting subject for the Arab League to be talking about publicly or openly, um, particularly with regional drought, which of course, in, in my view, is being heavily manipulated by Turkey, 
in which country the origin of much of the water supply for Iraq and Syria comes from, and Lebanon, actually. Um, so, um, yeah, momentous event, uh, something that all Syrians here are uh, celebrating enormously and um, a very big slap in the face uh, for the West to, to see these images. Okay, thank you for that. Now, uh, let's uh, move on to Turkey then. And of course, yeah. the Turkish elections have just finished. Um, so mm. who won? <laughs> well, neither of them at the moment. It goes forward to the second round because I think Erdogan finished up with a, a count of 49.5%. Uh, and Kelek Daraglu was a little bit below that. So if they don't uh, top the 50%, then, then they can't win the first round. They have to go on to the next round, which will be on the 28th. But what is really interesting for me is how the media has quickly flip-flopped to, oh, uh, well, maybe we'll have to accept um, Erdogan back again. Why is that happening? Because the parliamentary elections were held on the same day as the election. Um, and the AKP party, Erdogan's party, actually has a majority in parliament. So the likelihood of the CHP coalition, which of course was very much manufactured by the West, as Biden said back in 2020, that he would try to bring the opposition to power through one way or another through political means. Um, it means that on the 28th, it's unlikely that people will want a party in power that doesn't have a parliamentary majority. Now, this article in Politico rather reflects uh, how Western media is, is changing its attitude, as I said, rather reluctantly to accepting that Erdogan is going to be back in power. And let's have a look at what the author actually says. So she basically says Europe needs to find ways of seeking partnerships in which it offers value to its interlocutors while expecting something equally tangible in return. She talks about the transactional relationship between Turkey and the EU. Um, and so she says they should do so pragmatically, but not transactionally, as it has done so far with Erdogan's Turkey. Of course, the EU has been in a long-standing battle over the control of uh, refugees, particularly from Syria. Um, and it's one thing to have an honest conversation where Europe sets out what it needs and what it can offer, framing both within the contours of rights and law, but it's quite another to preach values while cynically pursuing transactions, hoping deep down that political change within those countries will never expose the West's contradictions. Has she come out with a little bit of truth in that final paragraph? Very unusual in journalism these days. Yes. It's, uh, Vanessa, it's very, very soft, though, isn't it? Because what yeah. she's talking about is gross hypocrisy. In the yes. West, it's it's not a few little contradictions. We're talking about massive <laughs> no. hypocrisy, but maybe Absolutely. that's as far as she could go in that publication. Uh, well, Vanessa, yeah. uh, coming back to Syria for a second, yeah. uh, this is the cradle, and they're they're uh, claiming an exclusive on this. Uh, the U.S. and Syria mm. holding secret talks in Amman. What is going on? Mm. Well, it, this is very interesting. This came actually immediately after what we talked about last Friday, which was the uh, U.S. bill in Congress to uh, prevent normalization with President Assad by imposing yet more sanctions and restrictions on the countries that are normalizing relations with President Assad and with Syria. Um, and this uh, claimed exclusive meeting came after that bill had been tabled. Now, it's not the first time that the U.S. has claimed to have held secret talks. But what is interesting is what it was about. Now, Syria came to the talks, apparently, according to the source that provided the information to the cradle, to talk about um, the withdrawal of U.S. troops. The Kurdish issue was not brought up either by the U.S. or by Syria, apparently, according to the source that supplied this um, information to the cradle, which apparently is, is reliable. Um, but it's about uh, the efforts to free the missing journalist, I put in inverted commas, Austin Tice. Now, let's have a look at just very quickly who is Austin Tice. Austin Tice is a former US Marines Corps veteran who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, he was at Georgetown University, which is well known for uh, incubating CIA operatives um, at the Law Center. And before his final uh, degree year, 
he happened to go to Syria in 2012, embedded himself in southern Damascus in Daraya, which was one of the kind of hot areas for the, um, the violent protests by the Muslim Brotherhood factions that we know have been weaponized by the West for decades against uh, various Syrian governments. And he was kidnapped um, on the 14th of August in 2012. Now, the US has always claimed that the Syrian government um, captured him and that they have him in detention. The Syrian government has always denied that. In 2018, the FBI increased its reward for information on Austin Tice to $1 million. In December 2018, his parents said that the best chance were direct talks between Syria and the United States. In 2022, Biden actually met with the parents, uh, iterated again that he was certain it was the Syrian government that had Austin Tice um, in detention and talked about direct talks with Syria. Now, apparently, intelligence back channel uh, negotiations have been going on, but this is the first time that we know of a meeting in Oman um, where effectively they are trying to negotiate for Austin Tice's release, although the Syrian government is still denying all knowledge. But that is quite possible because if he was in Daraya, it's also very possible that any one of the armed group factions could have taken him prisoner. It could be that the Syrian government has some intelligence on his whereabouts. But my point would be the US is making every effort possible to find this guy. When Serena Shim was murdered, probably by Turkish intelligence in 2014, the US turned a blind eye. It did nothing to investigate that. So in my view, Austin Tice was a very high level operative. He has information that the US does not want to, to get into the wrong hands. FBI offering one million. I mean, you know, this, this is a very interesting um, case for me. I'll be following it closely. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Okay, let's uh, come back then to... Uh, uh, oh, we just need to yes. skip through two so, slides. So, just, uh, uh, we're uh, on to Patriots is where we yes, want to so go I to. I'll uh, get there as quickly as I can. So here we go. Patriot missiles, defense system Ukraine, likely damaged. Uh, well, I've, I felt we had to uh, talk about this subject because this one is another incredible story. But uh, in the last few days, according to the Russians, they destroyed a Patriot battery and they damaged another one. Um, and this has now brought Patriot into the uh, Western media. So here's the headline. Patriot missile defense system in Ukraine likely, here's this qualified language we talked about from the British Ministry of Defence, likely damaged, US officials say. I have no doubt that uh, at least one system was taken out. Um, but we've now got Patriot being claimed as a wonder weapon, even though it failed. Now, I've got a little bit of uh, video, which I'll try and play in slide here. Um, Difficult to get much. This is from Hindustan Times. But have a look at the missiles going off. This is supposed to be Kiev. This is like Guy Fawkes night. This is like fire the fireworks. But in fact, what we're supposed to be seeing is a comprehensive missile uh, defense system working. But we've got Patriot missiles being fired off literally as if they were fireworks. And then the Ukrainians making this bizarre claim that they're now shooting down Russian hypersonic missiles. I am going to say in my uh, slightly old, but I think some, uh, I'm allowed to say qualified opinion in some areas, this can't, cannot be true. This is nonsense. Um, but uh, of course, what the West and the US would have us believe at the moment is that Patriot is this all singing, fantastic uh, system. So if I bring Reuters back on screen here, this uh, one of their articles, can Ukraine use Patriot defense systems to knock out Russian hypersonic missiles? And this is an article which has been forced into being by the Ukrainian um, uh, defense ministry and the military claiming to have shot down a hypersonic missile. But if you read this article, 
it's incredibly carefully worded so that it doesn't answer its own question. There are words on the page, there are sentences, there's text, there's paragraphs, but when you read it, it does not answer the question as to whether Ukraine actually shot down uh, uh, a hypersonic missile. And the reason for that, in my mind, is very clear because this is simply not credible. And what we need to remember is that the Patriot system is old. It was updated. Um, but how old are we talking about? Well, it was originally designed somewhere in the late 60s um, and then really came into being um, with its inherent radar system in, in the mid 80s. So we're going back to my time in the Cold War. This is not new technology, which supposedly we're being led to believe is dealing with the latest uh, West, um, uh, uh, sorry, um, Russian hypersonic missiles. Mm. Uh, this can't be true. Um, why, why would there be claims about this? Well, uh, basically because these are wonder weapons, which we're constantly being told um, are going to change the battle. But the reality is that they're not performing on the battlefield. So I'll just bring it literally in the background. Uh, here's the BBC talking about Kiev having shot down Russian hypersonic missiles. And um, we got another report from the Metro with some nice uh, pictures of the fireworks. But these are simply not credible. So um, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes now, the Patriot story. And um, the next wonder weapon for the West is, is it Hague? <laughs> well, is it William Hague or is it the F-16? Let's have a look at this little clip where he's being interviewed by the Times. I think they should get jets, but that's not going to be a decisive thing in the coming months. That's an important thing for a longer war that is depressingly the, the most likely thing to happen. There's a picture on the front page of the Times, of course. Um, I'll get you more jets, Sunak tells um, Zelensky. Um, it's quite a confusing picture, really, about uh, fighter jets, F-16s, uh, typhoons um, and all the rest of it. Um, uh, you know, what, what actual difference and what's the timescale, really, for any kind of um, additional support from, uh, from the West, including uh, Britain? But, William, in your column today... Uh, you say shock tactics, well, this is the headline on it, shock tactics may be the key to, to Putin's downfall. And you kind of um, list all the the strange mistakes and missteps, actually, that, that Vladimir Putin has uh, made um, at the beginning and throughout um, the war. Do those shock tactics involve um, jets to Ukraine? Well, not immediately, because it takes a long time to put that in place, really. And what I was writing about there is what might happen in the next few months, I was really drawing attention to, to generalship, really, I think a, an under-discussed thing, you know, there's been really incompetent military leadership on the Russian side, and very good leadership on the Ukrainian side, and this is giving them an opportunity now. Jets, though, are for the longest term, you don't suddenly magic up some jets, because you have to train the pilots, you have to have somewhere for them to be based, you have to have all the air defense systems around them. Uh, it's complicated. We can't, as, as, as President Zelensky has accepted, we can't send our typhoon jets. Mm. They need runways. They fly at the wrong altitude for it. They need a lot of maintenance. But we so have then, been talking about jets for a long time. It feels that way. Well, then remember that some countries, including the UK, have started uh, a while ago training pilots. Mm. So have been doing the... No, it's not that nothing has been happening, but you really took to... Act get jets to be part of the Ukraine war effort, they really have to be F-16s or the Gripen fighters of Sweden, but there aren't many of those. Those would be ideal because they can take off in a very small space. So um, the, it has to be one of those. And I think they should get jets, but that's not going to be a decisive thing in the coming months. That's an important thing for a longer war or that is depressingly the, the most likely thing to happen. But the chance to end the war quickly is through a military shock of the sort that I was describing and referring to some historical examples in my column today. So what planet is he on? But, but is, what's he talking about, a military shock? Is he talking about something bigger than we've seen so far? What is he talking about, nuclear weapons? Precisely. I do not know. The, the, you know, this man's been dragged up by the times, because presumably they know they can't put Tony Blair on because the public simply laughs. He, he is there talking about generalship on the battlefield. William Hague, uh, this, this, this whole report is not credible. Uh, 
On one hand, he's saying, well, of course, the Western aircraft can't fly in the battle zone because there's too much maintenance. They can't fly if there's any debris on the airfield they're going to use. So, no, no, they're really not, not going to go in there. Russians are shooting down the Ukrainian Air Force on a daily basis. The little planes left now are not doing anything. So this is hype around the fact that F-16, F-16, pure hype. And uh, this is the best the Times can do, Mike. I, I just find these, these reports incredible because they are, what are they? Propaganda. Total propaganda. But in the meantime, let's get some more propaganda. Jens Stoltenberg speaking a couple of days ago. Uh, on stage with uh, Anders Fogh Rasmussen, his predecessor. But uh, he made a comment about Article 5. Let's just have a listen. We don't know how this war will end, but what we do know is that when it ends, it is extremely important that we are able uh, to prevent history from repeating itself, meaning that we need to ensure that the pattern we have seen uh, of Russian aggression against neighbors uh, in Georgia in 2008, uh, uh, Crimea in 2014, later on uh, 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 Russia moving into eastern Donbass and then the full-fledged invasion uh, last year, this has to stop. Uh, and uh, the only way to ensure that that stops is partly to uh, ensure that Ukraine has the, 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 the military strength to, de, to deter and defend um, uh, against further aggression from Russia, but also to find some kind of framework uh, to prevent uh, Russia from, or President Putin from, continuing to chip away at European security. Exactly what kind of framework, I cannot tell you now. Uh, what I can say is that if NATO allies, and especially, of course, uh, the big ones starts to uh, issue security guarantees uh, uh, bilaterally to Ukraine. We are very close to Article 5. And this just seems incredibly stupid and incredibly dangerous. So what he's saying is, because Article 5, as everybody will know, uh, is uh, the agreement within NATO that it's the, effectively all for one, one for all. If, if one member is attacked, uh, all the other members of NATO come riding to the rescue. But what he's now suggesting is that a new framework is required where if, say, Britain decides to offer security guarantees to Ukraine uh, that, and Ukraine is attacked, uh, that, that that would, Ukraine not a member of NATO at this point, any third country uh, that any of, any of the other NATO members makes an agreement with, that would be viewed as being an Article 5 uh, uh, issue and would bring the rest of NATO in as well. This is just insanity. So it's making up NATO policy on, on the hoof in order to sit, suit the requirements of the Ukraine war. Yes. So, yeah. so look, Vanessa, let's, you, you wanted to, to bring this on screen, and I think it's absolutely right, because you know the, the criticism of Russia is insane in the context of the West's uh, post-9-11 wars. Uh, and the Watson Institute here at Brown University uh, having a look at indirect deaths uh, as a result mm. of those wars. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I recommend that everybody goes and reads the report. I Personally, of course, I don't think it goes far enough, but it's a very good start. It doesn't attribute any blame. Of course, I would argue that every single one of these indirect war deaths is a direct result of the kind of hybrid warfare that the West has been waging against uh, various countries since. Um, 9-11. And here they, they list the various indirect war deaths, economic collapse and food insecurity. Well, that would come under the sanctions umbrella and the devastation of infrastructure, deliberate devastation of civilian infrastructure, public services and health infrastructure destruction. Well, I, I will take the example of Syria and that the terrorists from day one were deliberately destroying all of um, Syria's civilian infrastructure, including electricity, um, water supply, uh, etc. Um, environmental contamination, well, in the report, as it mentions, 2,000 tons of depleted uranium in Iraq alone. In Iraq and Afghanistan, toxic waste was leaching from the various U.S. bases, probably also is happening here in Syria. Open air incinerators where they destroyed the detritus of war, where they burn tanks and, and um, redundant weapons, ammunition, etc. They often called them burn pits, um, which contaminated the air, the ground, water, um, uh, waterways, 
and led to serious health problems, respiratory cancer, and the very well-reported uh, birth defects in Iraq in particular. But I do think we're going to see that here in Syria in, in the coming years. Um, and if you look at the introduction, um, the little abstract to the report, Mike, which I think is the next slide, um, so they, they talk about the war's destruction of economies, public services, infrastructure, and the environment leads to deaths that occur long after the bombs drop and grow in scale over time. That's a very important point. This report reviews the latest research to examine the causal pathways that have led to an estimated 3.6 to 3.7 million indirect deaths in post-9-11 war zones, including Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, and Yemen, and I would say also now Ukraine, although obviously the, the documentation is not there yet, the total death toll in these war zones could be at least 4.5 to 4.6 million and counting, though the precise mortality figure remains unknown. Some people were killed in the fighting, but far more, especially children, have been killed by the reverberating effects of war, such as the spread of disease. And again, I'll take from the report um, Syria, there were, there is 15 million tons, let that sink in, of debris in Aleppo alone, in the city of Aleppo. 5.5 million in Homs. Unexploded ordnance, up to 15% of uh, NATO weapons or US, UK weapons fail to explode on impact. In Afghanistan in 2021, 160 people per month 79% children were dying from unexploded ordnance. 1,700 square kilometers of Afghanistan land is contaminated by unexploded ordnance. That's just some of the facts and figures from this report, but it is horrifying. And as you said, Mike, the sheer hypocrisy of the West laying wreaths um, at the memorial to Hiroshima. And also interesting, in 2014, the World Health Organization tried very hard to downplay um, the after effects of war and the deaths and the birth defects and the respiratory problems, the rising cancer that came as a result of the ordinance used in these countries. So there you have the WHO even back in 2014 trying to downplay what is also, in my view, the greatest contributor to any climate issues in the world today, which is the military industrial complex. Yes, okay, thank you. Now, I, I don't want to uh, get into much depth on this uh, next uh, story on this particular program. We'll, we want to look at this issue uh, a bit more in the future, but I just wanted to bring Neil Holland on screen, who's the UK ambassador to the OSCE, and he was uh, speaking yesterday at the OSCE, saying that since Russia illegally annexed Crimea in 2014, the Crimean Tatars have endured a ruthless campaign of persecution for simply existing in their homeland. Uh, and he mentioned one victim of this brutal discriminatory oppression, as he called it, uh, Lenny uh, Umarova, uh, a 25-year-old Crimean Tatar, uh, who he said had been, let's see, Russia guards uh, arrested her, interrogated her, for having a Ukrainian passport, looked through her phone and discovered her support for Ukraine. Uh, she was arrested in December 2022, according to him, uh, after returning to Crimea to take care of her seriously ill father. Uh, and then he went on to say that when she was uh, eventually released, uh, four men were waiting for her. They grabbed her, put a bag over her head, left her in an unfamiliar dis district of uh, uh, Moscow, uh, because she was eventually taken to Moscow, and then was immediately detained by the police and has not been released, and now she faces uh, an additional charge of espionage and found guilty. If found guilty, she faces 20 years in prison. Well, this is what uh, TASS had to say about the arrest, uh, and they said that the court has arrested a native of Crimea on charges of treason, uh, and that they're saying that she attempted to enter Crimea via Georgia, uh, and that she was then detained by Russian border guards, uh, 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 and basically was found guilty of violating the rules for crossing the Russian border and spent the next three months in detention uh, at the Center for Temporary Detention of Foreigners. And then she, after being released from there, she was again detained and brought to Moscow on charges of high treason. So that's what she's facing. Um, but uh, Vanessa, we wanted to highlight uh, this article on strategic culture to give a little bit of a little bit of it just to touch on the background of this, because it's not what the British 
are saying it was. So just to take a couple of quotes from this, it says, in the first half of the 1990s, the Ukrainian authorities encouraged the resettlement of Crimean Tatars in Crimea, and by 1995, their numbers had increased to around 10% of the population. At the same time, Kiev tried to nip uh, Turkey's influence in the bud uh, on Crimean Tatars. And so in 1998, Kiev made the process for obtaining citizenship more difficult for Crimean Tatars and abolished the quota for the representation in the Supreme Council of Crimea, which at that point was 14 seats. In response, the Tatar activists blocked the motorways and railway uh, on the eve of the parliamentary elections in Crimea and demanded 25 seats in the Crimean parliament instead of 14. Skirmishes began with the police and Kiev sent tanks to Crimea. Uh, in the elections, the Tatars did not get a single one of the 100 seats in Crimea's legislative body. So what the story that's actually uh, behind, coming out here is that in fact it was the Kiev regime uh, up until 2014 that were giving the Crimean Tatars quite a hard time. Uh, the article goes on to say, during the 20 year, 23 years of Crimea's stay in Ukraine, uh, there was not a single law passed on the rehabilitation of previously deported Crimean Tatars or a single program for the resettlement. Yet on the 21st of April 2014, just a month, a month after the law was signed, making Crimea part of Russia, President Vladimir Putin signed a decree on the re rehabilitation of Crimean Tatars and other repressed minorities in the peninsula. Now, uh, as I say, I'm not in a position at this point to go into this in any great depth, uh, but uh, this is again another uh, sort of inflection point, shall we say, where the British are trying to paint a story uh, of another country treating a minority in a particular way when in fact it was, in this case, the Ukrainian government that was being particularly uh, hard on that particular minority uh, up until 2014. And Vanessa, it just becomes increasingly difficult to uh, believe a word that comes out of the mouths of any British representative. Well, absolutely. And uh, Kiev actually only recognized the Mejlis, which is the highest representative body of the Crimean Tatars after 2014 after the people of Crimea voted to reunify um, with Russia. So that, again, demonstrates the hypocrisy. Um, the Mejlis themselves, or the more extremist factions among them, tried also to create another Maidan um, in Crimea itself in 2014. And those that left the peninsula, some of them, Hizbut Tahrir, uh, actually ended up in Syria as extremist Sunni factions. Um, fighting alongside groups like Al-Qaeda. But it's also worth mentioning that since 2014, you mentioned the decree on the rehabilitation of Crimean Tatars, but also in uh, 2019 and onwards, there has been a program to build mosques uh, alongside Orthodox churches for the Crimean Tatars. The uh, official language is one of the three official, it's recognized as one of the three official languages in Crimea, the others being Russian and Ukraine. And actually, um, I believe when this article was written, there was an interview with the head of the Mejlis, who basically said, we support um, the democratic choice of the people of Crimea to unify with Russia, and we support it. So, yeah, you know, I mean, what can I say? We see this time and time again, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province, the, the so-called rebels in Syria, um, it, it's endless. And yes, we shouldn't believe a word that comes out of the mouths um, of our officials, EU officials, US officials here on. <laughs> Sorry, the same kind of playbook uh, at work there. Uh, so anyway, let's, uh, let's move on to this very briefly uh, because I certainly hadn't heard about this, but quite an incredible building, a massive new US embassy complex in a tiny Mideast nation. Which particular tiny, tiny Mideast nation are we talking about? Well, we're talking about, this is in Beirut, um, which might actually shock, it certainly shocked me when somebody sent me these details yesterday. Um, quite extraordinary. It covers an area of 43 acres. It immediately reminded me of the green zone um, in Iraq, which of course was, was again another massive um, military intelligence complex under the control of the U.S. under the so-called auspices of the embassy. Um, Lebanon is a country of a six million population. It's a tiny country. It's not at war with the U.S. 
and yet the U.S. is building, as I said, over 43 acres, costing, well, it was, um, it, it was believed to cost $1 billion back in 2015, but I would say that it's gone way beyond that now. Um, also worth noting that uh, last month, it was 40 years since the 1983 suicide bombing of the U.S. Embassy um, in Beirut. Um, but if, if we just uh, move on, Mike, is there a couple of, I think, because I, I picked up a couple of tweets from people, um, some of them Lebanese, some not, but let's just have a quick look. Let's just call it for what it is. It's a military battle station, a forward operation base from where the biggest terrorist organization in the world can plot and execute their terror operations, a massive new embassy, U.S. embassy complex in a tiny Middle East nation is raising eyebrows. Lebanese on Twitter are wondering why the U.S. has such a large embassy in their capital. The new diplomatic complex in the suburbs of Beirut is two and a half times the size of the site on which the White House stands. In its place, 21 football fields could be placed just to give um, some kind of idea of the size of this. And here, the U.S. embassy fortress in Kiev on the left and on the right, the new U.S. embassy compound in Beirut, Lebanon. Lebanon didn't allow foreign military bases on its soil, so the U.S. is building this thing. And he then uh, repeats the size of 21 soccer fields um, in a country where 80% are below uh, any kind of poverty line. I did actually speak to somebody yesterday here in Syria about this, and he said, for sure, it's to do with Syria. It's not to do... Um, with Lebanon particularly, it's to do with putting further pressure on Syria in the future. And of course, the UK has been erecting um, military watchtowers on the border between Lebanon um, and Syria. Shamin Nawani, I just had to bring this up because I thought it was quite amusing. Um, so the uh, US embassy in Beirut is holding an international day against homophobia, transphobia, and biphobia. Actually, I don't know what Ida Hobbit is. But she pointed out the U.S. embassy in Beirut, which has driven the economic collapse of Lebanon and holds the nation's political class hostage, preach about, preaches about woke SH1T to a country busy looking yeah. for its next meal. I think that pretty much um, encapsulates everything that's going on. And this was a tweet that Camille Otrakshi, a Syrian analyst, put out yesterday with a picture of the embassy. Um, obviously, the U.S. is going to be claiming that it's housing nothing but diplomats. I'm quite sure that we could happily speculate that's not true either. Yes. I'll, I'll just throw one thing in here. When I looked at the picture of, the, of those buildings on top of that uh, um, little peak, um, I saw the snake. It was very obvious to me. I'll leave it to our viewers to have a look at those buildings and see if they can see what I saw. But I'll just throw that little comment in. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Your assistance would be very much needed and appreciated. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop. But please do share material you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, I just want to briefly mention that uh, yesterday's uh, interview with Thomas Binder is on the website at the moment, Dr. Thomas Binder, uh, Corona Insanitary, a remarkable story from a remarkable doctor is uh, is uh, the title. Uh, and we did have one comment, we had quite a lot of comment about this, but I, I wanted to focus on this one. Dear all, I've just, I just have to say that yesterday's interview with Debbie and Dr. Binder sums up all the UK column stands for, professional sharing information so that most can understand and absorb and compassionate. I'm sure that uh, there are many more appropriate words that others would use. I nearly shed a tear. So that, I think that's a very nice sentiment. So thank you very much for that. Indeed. Well, let's also a big thank you to the Public Child Protection Wales team, which were up in Westminster on Wednesday. This is a lovely photograph which Louise Collins sent through to the column um, showing all the people present. And I'm told that they were particularly, um, PCP Wales team were particularly pleased with engagement, the amount of engagement with the public. So many people stopping to ask what it was all about and many people um, in the, of the public shocked when they were shown the real material about what's being taught to the children. So brilliant effort. And just a reminder, this was the uh, fundraiser on Monday, 
88,027. Uh, Mike did mention, um, you mentioned this at the time, but I wanted to put it back up because um, uh, Nigel Cocaine there had, had uh, donated £50. And this is uh, one of the UK column viewers that's come in to help. Uh, this is where we are now. And it's obvious that we've still got UK column viewers who are get wading into support. So I want to say a really big thank you and uh, to anybody who hasn't supported the Welsh team, um, please would you consider doing it because they need to get to that 100,000 target. Um, a reminder that uh, tonight at 7pm we will be hosting uh, an expose of uh, the World Health Organization entitled uh, Who Do You Think You Are? Uh, and uh, so Catherine Austin Fitz will be uh, the chair of that, uh, Wolfgang Bodarg, David Bell, Sylvia Berent, uh, Philip Cruz, uh, James Roguski and uh, Meryl Nass will be presenting. Uh, I uh, would encourage everybody to get along and uh, watch that. The usual place is 7pm UK time, ukcolumn.org slash live. Uh, and it will also be on the, uh, the members uh, live page as well. And we also say we're very encouraged by people who are coming along to the UK column to help get their information out and about. It's a sign of uh, trust in the UK column and it's a very big compliment for us. So we'd like to echo back. Thank you very much. Well, can we trust our politicians? Um, can we? Let's have a look at uh, uh, the great Rhys Mogg uh, speaking to camera about language. Words are the scaffolding of action. They have a power within them. They end up determining how we lead our lives. And that's why it's quite important that the green fanatics have had a go at the Brecon Beacons. It's about control. Nobody in their right mind, until yesterday, thought that the beacon in Brecon Beacons was anything to do with climate change. It wouldn't have crossed anybody's mind. They didn't think about a beacon with coal on it spewing out dirty fumes. They thought the Brecon Beacons were a beautiful place that they could go uh, and visit. But control of language is the precursor of state control of thought. If you control what people say, the way they formulate their ideas, then you begin to control what they think and you begin to control what they do. And this is why it's so important and it colours the political debate. And over the last 20 or 30 years, our political debate has effectively been controlled by the left who have become the arbiters of language, what you can and you can't say. Now, I hope with Brecon Beacon that they have overreached themselves and made people realise how ridiculous this is and that we will push back. Those of us who believe that language should be used properly will push back and use it to its full extent so that we don't get any more NHS inclusivity guides which don't allow you to assume that somebody is a man or a woman. You've got to find out first or expect a man to say uh, that he's not pregnant when it's perfectly obvious that a man is not going to be pregnant or that you call alcohol um, misusers rather than alcoholics and you don't define drug addicts or you don't tell people who are fat that they're fat. If you don't tell people the truth, how are they able to learn? How are they able to know what the basic uh, need is for them? And this has been going through the civil service as well. There are 441 woke training courses in the civil service, some of which I tried to get rid of when I was uh, in the cabinet office, such as check yo privilege, give me strength, which we all need, leading without authority. Um, as Minister for Government Efficiency, I did try to get rid of 250 of these, but there were still over 100 left. Well, I, f I found this a fascinating uh, monologue to uh, Canberra because, of course, according to uh, Rhys Mogg, it's all a fault of the left and uh, it's all a bit ridiculous, but it's those left-wing people that brought this policy in. Well, let's just... Well, he did mention leading beyond authority. He did, <laughs> he did mention leading beyond authority, but, of course, what he didn't mention is where that actually came from. So let's bring this up on screen. And uh, OK, that's fine. Bring it up on screen. So we've got Common Purpose um, uh, boasting that David Cameron, the then Prime Minister, was working uh, for Common Purpose, bringing future leaders who were going to lead 
without any form of authority for those leaders from UK and India. So this was this was at the heart of the Tory party. There's nothing socialist about it unless um, Rees-Mogg doesn't actually understand, you know, what David Cameron is and he's a, he's some left winger um, in disguise. So I just found this this incredible. But let's also remember um, that we've got Francis Mords here, who was uh, the transparency man for the Tory party. And he was boasting that the Conservatives had unleashed applied behavioural psychology, boasting that they were they could change our views and values. And of course, a key part of this is the use of language. So this is nothing to do with some buried left wing uh, scheme. This is at the heart of the very Conservative Party, which uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg is part of. Mm. So I just found the clip astonishing. And um, is it just him or is it GB News that doesn't understand what's really been going on? So let's just follow it through because this has all been reported by UK Column years ago. This was the government Mindspace document, which came out of a Tory government. You can see the authors there, David Halpern at the heart of the government pushing out all of this policy to control people's behaviour, largely with the help of manipulation with language. On it went, um, but we'd also got Imperial College in there. What a surprise. And um, then when we start to look at it, we find things we should really pay attention, potential for controversy. Policymakers know that attempts to change citizens' behaviour may well be controversial. This is particularly true, giving new evidence about how people act and new ways of applying this evidence. Government legitimacy rests on the fact it represents and serves the people, and thus it's vital that their views are taken into account when considering any attempt to influence their behaviour. So this is amazing stuff. Um, where are we really getting to? The fact that behaviour's changed you don't know that it's happened, or if you realise the government's changed your behaviour, you don't know how it was done. This is all Conservative Party, and I find it very, very difficult to believe that that highly educated, well-spoken gentleman, Jacob Rees-Mogg, didn't know this was going on. And of course, recently, we've had the use of applied psychology uh, during the COVID lockdown, um, making people feel more frightened in order to get the agenda through. That included hard-hitting emotional messaging. That is manipulation of language in order to get government policy through. This is nothing to do with Labour. This is at the heart of the Tory party. Um, so what is Rees-Mogg up to? I'll just remind people that you know, well-known uh, columnist, so Peter Hitchens here back in 22, he said he hated the word lockdown because it didn't seem to be fitting to describe free people in a free country. But then he went on to say, we're no longer such people or such a country. We've become, quote, muzzled, mouthless, voiceless, humiliated, regimented prisoners. So against that background, this is the question I want to ask, really. Um, Rees-Mogg, is he completely ignorant of the implementation of these policies by his own Conservative government? Are we really to believe he did not know or was he confused as to what was going on inside the Tory party? Or is he deliberately misleading the public as to the origins of the political control of language to gain political power? My personal opinion is that it's the last of those. He fully knows where this policy comes from, but we're going to have to lead it to the audience to decide, um, you know, what what it's actually about. Now let's look at the second part of that clip, where he starts to talk about what we can do about it. And I wanted to bring this on screen because actually there's quite a lot of truth in what he's saying. So let's see the clip. So what we've got to do is push back to get control of our own language and not use the newspeak terms. So what do I mean by this? Well, say things as they are. Call spades spades. If you're a Yorkshireman, call a spade a shovel. Be clear and don't give in to the politically correct brigade or indeed to those with a political agenda. Why on earth do people not still refer to Burma? Why are we told what to do by a totalitarian regime that got rid of a democratically elected regime? Why do we go along with that? We shouldn't. We should call Burma, Burma. 
We should use proper English words such as chairman and spokesman. We shouldn't refer to somebody who is、um, chairing a meeting as the chair. A chair is a piece of furniture, not an individual. Because language matters. Once you lose the language, you lose the thought, you lose the action, you are controlled. And the left have been brilliantly clever about this and about getting. Control of the way we think to get their message across, because once you decide what people are allowed to say, soon or or later you decide what they're going to do. So I'm going to leave it to our audience to reflect on that. But for me, in the first part of the clip, he is clearly not telling the truth because the truth is that the Conservative Party has been at the heart of using the manipulation of language and still very much is. But nevertheless, what he says in that second part—that this needs to be, the language needs to be challenged at every opportunity—is certainly correct. And of course, we'll turn that straight back on Jacob Rees-Mogg and say, which language are you using? Because are you using truthful language, or are you manipulating the public by trying to blame it on the left-wing brigade instead of the Tory Party? Vanessa, have you got any thoughts just before we go? No, but、um, I mean, other than what you've been talking about, but I think it's interesting to watch his body language. I, what I find with、um, British politicians across all parties now, they've become so coached and so stuffed. They just—they don't move. They don't have. There's nothing genuine or honest. About them, when you actually look at their body language, what they're saying is another thing. Generally, we have to assume that's not honest at all. But the body language is so staged. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well, we can we can do、myself. more on this, Vanessa. But of course, the application of this this totally evil psychology has been fully used on our own politicians, and of course, many of them do not realise what's been done to them. But we'll we'll do more in future UK column news editions. Okay, we've got to finish there. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you're a UK call member, for some extra, and otherwise, I guess we'll see you on Monday at one pm as usual. Don't forget the、uh, symposium begins seven pm UK UK time this evening.、Uh, UKcolumn.org/live. I、uh, hope to see you there as well.、Um, otherwise, have a great weekend. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.